0: All right. That will not be the most challenging part of the morning, I promise you. Oh, how's everybody doing? Good. Good. If you have a Bible, it is Romans time, and it's not just Romans time. It is Romans chapter 9 time. Okay, so today we begin a long look at our relationship with God. When does it start? How does it start? Who starts it? Uh, We just started our marriage class last week. In a romantic relationship, who's the primary initiator? It's the man, right? Who is the primary, who's primarily responsible for the pursuit? The man. And whose job is to respond and receive? The woman. Now, does that mean in human relationships it always works out that way exactly, perfectly, hundred percent of the time? (laughs) Eh, More or less, but also kind of no. We studied Ruth about a year ago. Ruth does a lot of initiating, right? But she does it in a feminine way. (laughs) Marriage and human relationships, though, are a small picture of the big picture that is Jesus and His bride, the church. So the general principle is the man who represents Jesus initiates the relationship and the woman who's a picture of the church follows. Now, is that really how it is with God and us? Is that really how, how it is with God and us? We're asking that question because we're at a place in Romans now where Paul feels like there's a giant elephant in the room. Okay? He's gone on this huge eight-chapter riff about how the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everybody. First for the Jew and then for the Greek, the Gentile. It's the power of God for salvation for everybody. We're all sinners. We're all, we all fall short of the glory of God. But Christ is for everybody. And if we're in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. If we've been called by God, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8 is this huge, wonderful, glorious tribute to the love of God. And the fact that nothing in heaven, nothing in hell No power, no principality, no angel, no demon. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. If we are called, we belong to God. If God starts a good work in us, God will finish that work. Okay, so if you're in Christ, you were foreknown and predestined and justified or called and justified and you'll be glorified and all of that's right there in Romans chapter 8, right? If all that's true of you, Nothing can separate you from the love of God, so what's the elephant in the room? Well, if God is the one who does the saving, and if it's all of God from first to last, if we can trust God to keep us because God is the one who called us, well what about those He hasn't called? What about them? Or maybe more confusing, what about people it seems like He is called and chosen? but who seem to have rejected Jesus, then what? What about that? To get very specific, who are God's chosen people? Who did God give his covenant promises to? Who are the adoptions and the covenants and the law and the promises? Where does that all come from? Who is Abraham, the father of the faith? He's the father of the people of Israel, right? The Jewish people. So here's another question that Paul's concerned about. Why is it that so many of God's chosen people seem to have rejected Jesus or don't know him? How do we deal with that? Of course, there are exceptions, right? Paul was an exception. There were many Jewish believers in the early church, and there are still many Jewish believers today, those who have embraced Jesus as their Savior. I was A good friend of mine and mentor of mine was a Jewish believer. I've told you about him. His name was Bob Kapilis. He died just a year ago. But why is that? This is conflict. This is a problem. This is something that he feels tension about. The next big section of Romans is is, uh, starting with a big question that leads to another big question that leads to another big question. And the first question that gets it all started is this. Did God's word somehow fail? Did God's promises to Abraham or to Israel somehow come short? In some sense, all of Romans chapter 9 to 11 is trying to answer that question, and, it, and so it may make sense to say we're going to start answering that question today. But before we get into the passage and this section, I want to say this. Okay, when I first came to Christ, when I first came to faith, part of coming to Jesus for me was realizing my own hypocrisy. I considered myself a Christian and I was engaged in the party scene. I was involved at the same time in middle school and high school parachurch ministry. And my friends and I didn't see a problem with that. So we were on the party scene and there was alcohol there and there were drugs and there were all kinds of things, okay, that were no good and yet we were all somehow thinking we were spiritual leaders of middle school kids. And part of my coming to faith was dealing with my own hypocrisy, okay? And then I got involved in a local church. In that that local church, there was a youth pastor who turned me on to doctrine, to theology, set my mind on fire for the things of God. And I studied the big truths of God The sovereignty of God, and I learned uh, uh, the Bible's big words like predestination and election and superlapsarianism and supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and at least one of those words is not in the Bible. It's not supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. That's the Greek for Bible nerd, which is what I am. You can trust me. I'm an expert but I became a Bible nerd, okay? Then I went away to college and I found a church because I'm a Bible nerd now, right, that lined up perfectly on paper with all of the doctrine that I thought Scripture had to teach. And while I was up there, that same youth pastor who had set me on this path of doctrine and theology was fired for being involved sexually with girls in the church, and so then I left that church up in Bloomington because I was afraid. Man, theology's not the answer. And it's really easy to get, you know, your head full of knowledge while your heart goes cold. So I swung right back over here. It's like, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be that. I'm not going to be that. Whatever I do, I'm not going to be that. I'm going to be around people that, whose hearts are alive. So I went right back into the parachurch community where everybody seemed to be driven by love, where there seemed to be spiritual life. And there was a high priority on love and a low priority on truth. And within a couple years in the parachurch ministry, I discovered that many of the leaders were involved and having sex with each other, getting drunk on the weekends. And it was just the same things over and over again, no matter where I went. In all that process, this is what I learned. Wherever you have sinners, you have sin. Period. And it doesn't matter where you look. There is no way to protect yourself from that. And I learned that both truth and love are equally effective ways to hide your sinful heart and your sinful behavior. You can let your heart go cold and hide behind a barrier of rich theology that protects you, that makes you feel like you really get things and you really understand and you really know the Bible better than all those people out there while you slowly let your heart shrivel and go, uh, go cold. And you can allow your heart to wander away from the truth into all kinds of sin under the pretense of being spiritual and loving people. You can let go of restraint and self-control under the guise of being compassionate and loving and tender. And those people that are committed to truth, they're harsh. I learned there's no fortress we can build against sin that's going to protect us the only thing we can do is be fully engaged in the fight day by day. We have to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. We have to be able to hold everything in tension. And I say that because this morning when we come into Romans 9, Romans nine, ten, and 11, we're coming to a part of Scripture that's going to be very challenging for all of us in different ways, each of us. We're going to be challenged over the next uh, several weeks as we grapple with the truths of this passage. And some of us are going to be tempted to harden our hearts toward those who are lost and suffering and who don't know Jesus under the pretense of really loving and embracing the hard truths of God. And some of us are going to be tempted to harden our hearts towards God and His truth under the pretense of loving the lost. And we have to guard ourselves from both of those temptations. We have to love God and we have to love people. We have to love God's truth. And we have to embrace that all of God's truth is for all of us and for all people. And it will shape us and it will make us better at loving people if that's our aim and our goal. We have to take our cues from the Apostle Paul, who on the one hand, holds the love of God for sinners like us, and his own love for those who didn't know Jesus, especially those who are close to him in one hand, and holds the absolute good and beautiful and true knowledge of the sovereignty of God and all of salvation in the other hand, and doesn't see those as at conflict with one another, but in harmony. There's beauty and strength and truth and comfort and peace there, but it requires faith. Living in the tension of living by faith. And that's where Romans 9 actually begins, and that's something that we forget. So that's where we're going to start this morning, and we're going to live there. And I want you to hear the heart of the Apostle Paul as he begins this section. Okay? I am speaking, this is Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, the first thing to see as we come to this, before we get into any discussion of predestination or election or all the big themes that we see in Romans chapter 9, is the heart of the Apostle Paul. His heart is broken. He is heartbroken for his people, for his kinsmen, because they have rejected Jesus. And that's the starting place for Romans 9. That's what frames the whole chapter, sorrow and anguish of heart. For people who don't know God. And that should be the starting place for us too. We should be heartbroken for those who don't know and love Jesus. Especially those who are close to us, our family, our neighbors, our friends, our kinsmen, as he calls them. That's why I wanted to come back here to Evansville to plant this church. I think we live in dark days. I think the days are getting darker. I think living in a university community made me feel and see that more clearly than many pastors have the opportunity to see and feel. I was afraid that my people didn't have many good churches that were gonna help equip them for dark times. And I wanted to come and help be part of the fight here among my people. The older I got, the more mature and the faith I got, the more I wanted to come here. I wanted to come home. I love this place. I love you. So the question I have is, do you have specific people in your life that you feel that way about? That you just wish would meet Jesus and experience the love of God the way that you have? It's not impossible. All things are possible with God. Remember who wrote the letter, right? It's the Apostle Paul, the man who was going around separating families, persecuting Christians, overseeing the murder of Christians, throwing people in jail for their faith until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He calls himself the chief of sinners. And we all feel like that from time to time, right? Paul had the resume to back up the claim. But Jesus changed him and saved him. And here he is grappling with the fact that Jesus saved him, but many of his brothers, his kinsmen, his people still don't know Jesus. What's he going to do about that? How does he make sense of that? He needs to make sense of that for himself. He needs to make sense of that for us. He feels like he would trade places with them if he could. He can't do that. I don't know about you, but I feel like there are a lot of people out there that seem to me to be more deserving of the grace of God than me. You feel that way? I think Paul felt that way. He looked at his life and was like, I do not deserve any of this. But then again, none of us do. And here we are. And out there are people that we love dearly who don't know Jesus. So how do we make sense of that? That's the question he's trying to answer. He's talking about his love for his family. His whole family line has been blessed by God. And they have, many of them, missed that Jesus is the God who blessed them. It's tragic. It's especially tragic because Paul's people, again, are the people of Israel. They're the Jews. Were the Jews blessed by God? All of it, all of the history The stories, the prophets, the priests, the kings, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Moses to Joshua to the judges to David to Solomon to Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel. The whole Old Testament, all of it, was God's blessing of the Jewish people through Jesus. It was always about Jesus. And then Jesus came. And many, many, many of them rejected him. How many of you come from a family that's been blessed by God? How many of you come from a family that's been blessed by God, but you have members of your family, maybe many of, the, of them, whose hearts are far from God? Does it break your heart? It should. And it should break your heart that the people the children of Abraham, our father in the faith, by faith, that many of them have rejected Jesus too. Here's what's going on. Many of the people of God have rejected God. And here the Apostle Paul has been talking about the security of those who love God and are called by him. He wants us to be secure in the love of God so we're free to love others and live in a world of evil without fear because knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God changes us and frees us to not care what people think, to not be afraid. But then it raises the question, what about Israel? Aren't they the chosen people? What does it even mean to be chosen then? That's what he is about to open up for us over the next several chapters. Now listen, You guys remember Peter, right? Not Paul, but Peter, the apostle. Very different person, very different kind of man than the apostle Paul, right? What do you know about Peter? Who was he? I'm going somewhere with this, but I want you to answer. He was a blue-collar dude, right? He was just a fisherman. He'd not been to school He'd not studied anything. He was just a blue-collar, work-with-his-hands kind of dude, right? He was a blunt instrument. He was bold. He was gutsy. He was going to take big risks. He was going to make big mistakes. Like, all of our stories of Peter are like, he's the guy who's going to get out of the boat and walk on water with Jesus, and then he's the guy who's going to suddenly be walking on water and then fail, flail. He's the guy who's going to be like, Jesus, I will never betray you. And then when the little servant girl comes, he's going to be like, yeah, I didn't know. I don't know that guy. Peter's a, he's just a, a, a big, larger than life, big risk, big mistakes, blunt instrument, right? What does Peter say about Paul's writing? He says there are many things that Paul writes that are very hard to understand. So if that's you, as we go through this, which is many people would argue one of the most difficult passages that Paul ever wrote. If that's you, as we go through this, and it's hard to understand, you're in good company. You're right there with the apostle Peter. Okay. Paul was not by nature a blue collar guy. Paul was an intellectual. He was a thinker. He was an academic. He was the kind of guy who had multiple degrees He was, he spoke multiple languages and read and could write in multiple languages. He was cosmopolitan. He studied under a man named Gamaliel, who was the foremost Jewish teacher of his time. It'd be like saying that he went to Harvard or Yale, right? He's just like an intellectual genius, one of the great thinkers that has ever lived in the history of the world, chosen to write 13 books, at least, of the New Testament Some people argue 14. It's just an intellectual giant on another level than all of us. Okay? And that's not to give you the wrong idea about Paul, right? He's the kind of intellectual that you would respect if you were a blue-collar man. Okay? He wasn't sitting alone in some, you know, college office pinning treatises. Treatises. He was a man who believed what he preached and taught so much that he went out to tell the world about it and he traveled, walked on foot, often 20 miles a day. And he suffered tremendously. And he picked up a trade so that he could work with his hands and provide for himself as he went and preached and taught. He was a tent maker, humble trade. But the reason I say all of that is because I want us to understand we're getting into the most difficult and dense things that he's written in a difficult and dense book. And what we believe matters. And what we do matters. And if what we believe doesn't translate to action, we're missing something. And if it doesn't translate into love and brokenheartedness for those who don't know Jesus, we're doing it wrong. Paul was not a dry, cold, heartless academic preaching a dry, cold, dead theology that had no bearing on his life. And he was not some zealous, flighty, ungrounded, ultra-spiritual, love-is-the-answer-to-everything hypocrite. He was an integrated man. His theology was on fire. He was a man of faith. And that gave him the spiritual potency and power that God used to help transform the world through his writing in the New Testament and the churches that he planted. If we think we understand what he's talking about and it doesn't produce a life of sacrificial love like his, we're either getting it wrong or we're getting it right and we'll be judged for our hypocrisy, for failing to live up to what we knew and understood. Okay, all that's preface. To get to the question, did God's word somehow fail because many of God's chosen people, the children of Israel, did not believe in Jesus? Did God's word fail? So we'll pick up with the answer in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word doesn't fail. God's word never fails. It always accomplishes His purpose. Now here's the explanation that we'll begin to get into today. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Abraham gives us Israel, gives us Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament, and finally Jesus. And some of Israel believes, but much of Israel does not. Did the word of God fail? And the answer is no, it didn't. And here's the reason Paul gives We have to understand that Abraham has two types of children. It was always this way, it was always this way on purpose, it was this way all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had two children, Cain and Abel. They had two types of children. Abraham has physical children, children according to the flesh. That's going to include Isaac, but it's also going to include Ishmael. And it's going to include everybody who physically descended from Abraham's line today. But Abraham also has spiritual children, children of promise, children by faith. That was Isaac. Isaac was a child of promise, and he received the promises of God by faith. Paul talks about this already back in chapter 2 that we studied months ago when he says this, "'For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God.' Up until the time of the New Testament, most, but not all, of the spiritual children of Abraham were also physical children of Abraham. Today, the doors of salvation have been opened wide, and there are many spiritual children of Abraham who are not physical children. This is what the New Testament spends a lot of time grappling with. What do we do with all of these Gentile believers now? Do we circumcise them? Gentiles were like, nope, no thank you. Do we make them follow dietary guidelines and restrictions? Nope, we like bacon. This is the kind of thing that the New Testament church dealt with, right? Probably most everyone in this room is like me. Not a child of Abraham according to the flesh. Not Jewish by descent. But if you belong to Jesus, you are a child of Abraham spiritually by faith. You've been adopted in, grafted in. So what does that mean? It means it's all less about who your physical father is and more about who your spiritual father is. It pleases God to work through families. It pleased God to work through the family of Abraham. But what pleases God most is faith. Does it matter what kind of family you're born into? It does. It does. We all see that and we all feel that and we all know that. We all know that one of the hardest things about the world we live in today is how many kids grow up in broken homes without a mom and dad at home that love and care for them or with only one parent. It matters what kind of family you're born into. If you grew up in a Christian home, you have had the promises of God extended to you from the time that you were born. You are a highly privileged person. You've had God's promises so long as you were under your parents' authority in your parents' home. You have the benefit of God's covenant promises, promises extended to you in the love and care and discipline of your parents and of your church family your whole life. That's huge. That's not just a family, that's a community. But if all you are is born physically into a believing family, that is not enough. You still must be born again spiritually into the family of God. You must receive God's promises by faith and you must own them and you must have God as your father, not just Abraham. Because who was Abraham, really? Well, Abraham started as a nobody. The Bible says Abraham's family served other gods. He was an uncircumcised Gentile just like everybody else. And then God chose him and called him and made a covenant with him. Abraham wasn't seeking God. But God sought out Abraham. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham. Abraham didn't love God. He was doing his own thing. But God loved Abraham. And so Abraham believed and received God's promises and loved God because God loved him first. Because God sought him out and chose him and called him and changed him. And that's how the gospel works. That's the beauty and power of it. God saves us. We don't save ourselves. Each of us was going astray. Every one of us had turned to his own way. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, lost. But God being rich in mercy made us alive. It's all about God, not about us. He's the hero of the story. We're not the hero of our own story. We don't save ourselves. That's Paul's story. He's on the road to a place called Damascus to persecute Christians. He wasn't looking for Jesus. And then out of the clear blue, Jesus comes to him and strikes him blind and says, Yeah, you thought you were going to Damascus to persecute Christians, but guess what? You're mine now. Paul meets Jesus there on the road and he's changed. The believers take him in and now he's going to be persecuted and he's led out over the city wall in a basket by night to escape. Some of you this is your story. You were going your own way and God did something. You were lost and he found you. You were dead and he made you alive. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son for us the Bible says. This is what God does. This is what God did for Abraham. God's promise is Then come to Abraham. God promises to give Abraham a son, Isaac. It's supernatural. It's amazing. And through Isaac, all of God's promises are going to come to fruition. Because through Isaac comes a great nation called Israel. But not just that. Because through Israel comes Jesus. And in Jesus, all the nations, not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth are blessed. He's the Savior of the world both Jews and Gentiles. His gospel is the power of God for salvation to both Jews and Greeks. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. This is what he's been opening up. This is what he's continuing to open up. It's always been about Jesus. All the promises were about him, who he is, what he would do for the whole world. But that still doesn't quite nail the argument down, does it? As we're going to see, Paul likes to nail the argument down. It's going to keep boxing us into corners. So if you wanted to point out that Abraham had physical children and spiritual children, and that's the distinction, how would you do it? Where would you go? What would you do next? So there's Isaac and there's Ishmael, right? He references that. But Isaac and Ishmael, somebody could say, oh, that's a little problematic. Why was that problematic? Well, God's promise was about him and Sarah. But Ishmael, that's not Abraham and Sarah. That's Abraham and Hagar. That's something different. Okay, so he says, fine, we'll just leave that one alone. It's there and it's real. Let's just skip right on to the next one. Let's go to Abraham's grandkids. Let's go to Isaac's children. Because Isaac had twin sons by one woman named Rebecca. He is a perfect test case. Isaac, the son of promise, two kids, twins. Okay, how about that? Does that level it for us? It couldn't be any more perfectly level than that, could it? So Rebecca has twins in her womb. And like brothers, they're fighting with each other from the womb. The boys fight, the boys fought. They struggled with each other from the womb. They're going to go and they're going to be born. And one of them is going to be trying to pull each other, the other one back in, you know, hanging onto the heel. And God spoke to Rebecca before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. And told her what? The older will serve the younger. Is that the way that things normally work? It's not the way things normally work. The older doesn't serve the younger, the younger serves the older. The oldest son gets the lion's share of the inheritance, the land. He becomes the next patriarch. God says, not in this case. In this case, it's going to be inverted. God likes to flip things upside down to show his power. Okay, so let's talk about Jacob and Esau for a minute. Esau is the firstborn. What's Esau like? He's a man's man. He is his daddy's boy. He is hairy. He is a hunter. He is a manly, masculine dude, and dad loves him, and dad thinks he's the best He's these manly hunter, awesome, hairy man. And Jacob's kind of a mama's boy. He's a little soft, a little smooth. So here's the story. Esau goes out hunting, comes back super hungry, famished. And Jacob, he's a slick guy, He has his chance. He says, I'll trade you a bowl of soup for your birthright. And Esau takes it. He makes a trade. Horrible trade. Who's the good guy in the story? Nobody. Jacob took advantage of the situation. Esau despised his birthright. Esau chose instant gratification over the future, over a heritage, over a legacy. And that is how young men ruin their lives. They choose what's right in front of them over the future, over a heritage, over a legacy. For the girl, for the money, for another drink, for another hit, for one more look, How many lines have you crossed for the most trivial of pleasures? Some lines, once you cross them, there's no coming back from them. Esau crossed the line and it was a line he could never come back from. For instant gratification. He's an object lesson for all of us. Later on, with the help of his mother, Jacob tricks Isaac into giving him Esau's blessing. So the question is, who's responsible for Esau? Esau. Who's responsible for Jacob? Jacob. We can argue all day about who was more or less in the wrong, but it's pretty hard to argue that either of them are too much in the right. What does the Bible say about how this all came to be? Well, Esau was doing Esau and Jacob was doing Jacob. And when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. One man, Isaac, Twins, Jacob and Esau. They're not born, they have not done anything good or bad. The older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It It was their destiny. Why? Scripture actually tells us. And the answer is in order that God's purpose of election, in order that God's purpose of his own free, sovereign choice might stand, might continue. This has everything to do with the freedom of God to do as he pleases, to make his own sovereign choice, to elect. And it doesn't depend on, it says, it doesn't depend on works, it depends on fill in the blank. It doesn't depend on works, it depends on, you want to say faith. You want to say faith, because all over the place it says faith. Not by works, but by, by faith, Right? We spent several chapters talking about how salvation doesn't depend on works. It's not by works, but it's by faith. Faith is how we receive salvation, it's how we receive justification. But it's not how salvation comes to us. And it does not say, not by works, but by faith. It says, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. This is about the call of God. This is about the free choice of God. It pleased God to choose to elect Jacob and not Esau. It pleased God to love Jacob and to… What's the word? Hate. Esau. Period. and be honest, what's your response to that? If your response is that doesn't seem fair, that doesn't seem just, you can be honest. Guess what? That means that you understand it. It means you're on the right track. Because that's what Paul expects you to say. And that's the very next question. That's the next line. You're going to think that's not fair. You're going to think that's not just. So let's ask that question. Is it just? Is it fair? And that's the next question. And today we don't have time to resolve that tension. And guess what? That tension is gonna keep building and escalating as we work through. Every question in Romans nine leads to a hard answer, a harder answer, which leads to another question, which leads to a harder answer. So I want us this morning to live with the tension. We'll be back with greater depth and detail. I know there's a lot going on here. And I know that some of you have spent a lot of time studying these passages. And you're like, well, let's talk about what he actually said in Malachi. Let's talk about that word hate. Let's talk about it in the Greek and let's talk about it in the Hebrew and see if there's some space we can create. Are we talking about the nations? Are we talking about the individuals? I know a lot of you have thoughts and questions about that sort of thing. But actually, how about we take the passage out its plain meaning, I'm talking about two kids, twins, born in the womb, from the womb, from their mother's womb. This is the application. This is what the Bible says. And the expected response when it's said to you is, you're going to think that's not fair. You're going to think it's not just. So let's live there. Now remember, big step back, breathe. Who would you rather have determine your destiny? Yourself or God? If if you're left to yourself, what do you choose? If you're left to yourself, you choose death and hell. So here's what I want us to trust. Everything else we've studied to this point, everything else we've studied to this point, God is good and God is gracious. God is love. You don't have to understand everything. When God reveals things to us though and explains them, it is for our good. And the truth itself is good and beautiful. It may be hard and difficult, but the problem there is never God or his truth. It's us. It's us. So trust that God is good and gracious and powerful. Our fate is in his hands and that's good hands to have it be in. Okay. And that gives us a reason to pray for those we love and care about because, because God is powerful to intervene. It gives us a reason to preach because God works powerfully through the preaching of his word. That's why Paul did what he did. That's why he prayed and that's why he preached and that's why he traveled. And it gives us tremendous comfort because if we love him, it is because he loved us first. And our salvation doesn't depend on our weak, fragile, frail love. It depends on his which is secure, which is mighty, which is all-powerful, which is never changing, never stopping, unbreakable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. He has us. So there's comfort there and assurance there and the ability to rest easy on our beds at night because God is for us. And for many who don't know him yet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the hard truths of your word. We pray that you would help each of us to rest in your love and kindness and care for us and for the world. We thank you for sending Jesus and not leaving us to ourselves. Father, we pray that you would use this time studying difficult passages to grow each of us in our love for you, and in our love for the lost. Help this church grow and build your kingdom in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.